0: This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the BoneBeat Orthopedic Podcast channel. We cover health policy issues impacting musculoskeletal care, as well as how our orthopedic surgeon listeners can become advocates for our patients in the profession. I'm your host, Adam Bruggeman, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. This podcast was recorded one day after the speaker was vacated. We have the great honor today of welcoming Congresswoman Miller-Meeks to our podcast. We don't always get to have the opportunity to speak with members of Congress and certainly don't always get the opportunity to speak with a fellow physician. So it is my honor to introduce you today. Congresswoman Miller-Meeks, thank you for joining us today on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, very happy to be with you as we've encountered each other several times when uh, orthopedic fly-in occurs in D.C., but also uh, you're from my old stomping grounds in San Antonio, Texas. So uh, just so that your listeners know my background before coming to Congress, I actually grew up around the San Antonio area. My dad was stationed at Lackland Air Force Base. He was enlisted, a uh, career in the military in the Air Force. My mom had a GED Both my parents worked, and I was the fourth of eight kids. When I was 15, I was severely burned in a kitchen fire, and it was during that long hospitalization that I decided I wanted to be a doctor. Now, at this point in time, no one in my family had ever gone to college. And so it was a pathway of trying to chart a destiny for myself when my parents were very discouraging of that. So I actually left home at 16, started working in San Antonio, started at San Antonio Junior College, job as well. Enlisted in the Army when I was 18, ended up spending 24 years in the military from enlisted to officer, active duty to reserve, and figured that if I would get a degree in nursing, I would be able to work at night and put myself through medical school. So I started at community college, got a degree in nursing. And then a master's in education that ultimately was able to get into medical school at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Did my internship at Bear County and always thought when I entered medical school that I would be a small country doctor out like in Hondo, Texas, which is west of San Antonio and did not think that I would be in a subspecialty, but ended up going into ophthalmology. I had been an operating room nurse as well as neurosurgical and emergency room. So I knew I wanted to do something surgical and it just ultimately worked out that ophthalmology is what I did. Did my residency at the University of Iowa. And as I said, my internship at Bear County and then fellowship in glaucoma at the University of Michigan. I was on faculty both at the University of Michigan and the University of Iowa. Then I was in private practice, then I ran for Congress unsuccessfully, then became the director of the Iowa Department of Public Health, and then was in private practice again, but as an employee of a hospital. So I've been in military medicine, I've been in academic medicine, I've been in private practice, my own small business, and then as an employee of a hospital, bringing a small ophthalmology practice out of the red into the black and then recruiting two other ophthalmologists for that practice, and then ran for the state senate. I was a state senator for two years, chair of the Human Services Commission. We did a lot of very good work on pre-authorization and step therapy, and then some other things in maternal morbidity and mortality space, and then was asked to run for Congress. Uh, initially was very hesitant, but then ran for Congress. And I was elected in 2020, after all of the recounts, was elected by six votes and a challenge to the House Committee on Administration where Speaker Pelosi wanted to toss me out. But she wasn't successful. We were in a steering contest. She blinked. I remained in Congress and then was reelected by 7% in 2022. But it's a swing district. My district is a very tough district. I am now on energy and commerce, which is where the bulk of healthcare is. I also serve as the chair of the subcommittee on health for the House Committee on Veterans Affairs. And then I'm also on the select subcommittee of the coronavirus pandemic. I'm in the Doctors Caucus, the Western Caucus, the Conservative Climate Caucus, where I'm vice chair, Republican Main Street. These are a variety of the other caucuses to which I belong and which makes my staff have to do a lot of work. That's my background.
0: That is such a great story. And I know we all have great stories for how we got into medicine and how we ended up down the pathway, but really inspiring. And I certainly hope our viewers or listeners can fully appreciate what it took to get there. And I have to say, for those of you that don't know her, she is an absolute champion for our patients and for our practices. And while this is a very difficult district, I can't think of someone that's tougher that can handle it. She is always in there getting into the weeds and helping us fight for the things that need to happen. I did want to speak a little bit today about something near and dear to all physicians, regardless of who your specialty is, whether you're an ophthalmologist or an orthopedic surgeon, you're impacted by how Medicare is paid and the payment reform. And for those listeners that are not aware, we have the Strengthening Medicare for Patients and Providers Act, which is HR 2474, which Congresswoman Miller-Meeks was one of the original sponsors, along with several other champions, Ruiz, Bouchon, and Bera. Would you tell us a little bit about the bill from your perspective and maybe a little bit about how this is different from prior Medicare reform plans that we've had in the past, say, SGR or some of the other things that we've done?
1: I think we've gone through, for those physicians who have been in medicine for a little while, we've gone from SGR and all of the problems with SGR to then macro, which is seems like it's a continuation of the problems. And I think the biggest issue is that as you continue to have people age, more people are on Medicare, they utilize the benefits of Medicare and the costs go up. But through COVID, we've been in a period of very low inflation, 2% inflation for over a decade. And then in COVID, because of the spending practices of the Biden administration, when there was already a ton of money pushed out by the Trump administration to respond to shutting down businesses, we just flooded the marketplace or the country with money. So there was too much money chasing too few goods. And the net result of that is inflation. And so we saw inflation tick all the way up to 9%. I remember having the pleasure, if you will, getting witness testimony from uh, Fed Chair Jerome Powell, who mentioned that inflation was transitory. And I just said, with all due respect, Chair Powell, I'm a small country doctor. To me, transitory means two weeks, two months at the most. So what's transitory mean to you? Is it two months? Is it four months? Is it six months? Because it already been five months And they, again, were on the same tactic that it was transitory. And part of that was, I think, because of pressure from the administration. And that's regardless of who the president is. You want the Fed. There is some influence from the president's administration to the Fed in order to have economics favorable to that administration. So I think they kept interest rates down too low for too long. Inflation ticked up rapidly uh, in less than a year to 9%. Now, the administration touts that inflation is now down to 3%, but it ticked back up just last month, just a couple of weeks ago. While the inflation may have come down, what has not come down are interest rates. So anybody that's wanting to go into practice, start a practice, change their computer system, build something, add a service, the interest rates that you have to pay for any loan are much higher or even relocate, number one. And then number two, even more importantly than that, Inflation may be down, but prices are not down. Prices have stayed way up here. And I would say that when I came in, being a small business owner, it changes your dynamics and your perspective. So when I was an employee, there's one set of issues. But being a small business owner, one of the things I saw and correctly predicted for the Affordable Care Act, way back in 2010, I had said the Affordable Care Act would lead to increased consolidation, So whether that was larger individual single specialty practices, multi-specialty practices, or worse, companies or hospitals buying up physician practices. So we have seen physician practices go from 50% independent practices in 2010 to now less than 20%. As I looked at all of this, I said, how can I support all physician practices but also support those that are independent practices or small groups. And one of the ways to do that is to give physicians the same tools that we give hospitals, and that is an inflation adjustment. Your reimbursement is not going up. So if your reimbursement's not going up, and every single year you are faced with cuts to Medicare, and ophthalmologists, we're primarily Medicare. So if your payer mix is primarily Medicare and Medicaid, you really suffer every time they cut, even if it's a one or 2% cut, because inflation is not 2% anymore. Inflation went up to 9%, prices have stayed up. So in order for you to be able to hire people, to raise their salaries, to be able to buy supplies, to pay for your rent and your property tax, any of those things, whether you're an individual practice or a group practice, or you're a hospital-based practice, you're being affected by all of those dynamics of inflation, increased prices and increased interest rates. And to me, it seemed the most fair thing to do was to put forward a bill to have an inflation adjustment for physicians. I feel very strongly about this. And I would say that's one of the good things about having a physician in Congress who has been through all of these different iterations of where you can practice medically as a physician and also in a rural community but the bad thing about being a physician in Congress is that you're not a physician in practice where we desperately need physicians in practice.
0: Yeah, I think that's wonderful summary of the challenges we've seen over the last decade since the implementation of the Affordable Care Act and the changes in the economy. We know that the American Medical Association has made Medicare payment reform their number one priority. We at the American County of Orthopedic Surgeons have the same opinion as do I think many specialty societies. What are you hearing when you speak with your colleagues on the Hill about where we can go with this legislation, what needs to be done, and how we get this across the finish line?
1: So I think two things. One is something that's occurred recently that's unexpected, and that was the recent change in speakership in the House and how choosing the next speaker. So I can tell you that I have many more questions of who will be the next speaker than I did nine months ago, or I did in my first term in 2021. And in 2021, it was Speaker Pelosi, so we did not have the majority. But now I have the ability to ask questions. And one of those questions is going to be, where are you on payment reform? Where are you on macro? Where are you on site neutrality, physician-owned hospitals? And then there's thing inflation adjustment. Those questions will be asked of whoever I'm interviewing for the next speaker, in addition to things that are specific to my state, such as biofuels, energy, climate, and the environment. So those are the things that I'm gonna be looking at as I look for the next speaker. So I would have said the conversations were going well. I think you all as physicians and the orthopedic physicians were just here a couple of weeks ago, you all did a very good job of laying out the case I've had these same conversations that if we want to maintain one of the things that we see in the Energy and Commerce Committee is a lot of talk about competition and competition will help to overall lower prices. So that's when you look at the global system. But in order to have competition, you need to have physicians and independent practice. So I have been making the case with both Energy and Commerce, our chair and our committee members, as well as the chairs of Ways and Means and Appropriations, That having robust independent practices helps with competition and that will help to lower prices. And then you all made that case when you came into town. So I think we've laid out the case. We have much more support than we had at the beginning when we talked about these issues. It's also like graduate medical education. But I will tell you that with this change in speakership, to me, it's uncertain. And it's why the choice of the next speaker for me is critically important. And I'm talking to my colleagues in Iowa about why this is an important issue and why we should be asking these questions.
0: Yeah, I think you're getting to the cost of not doing something. A lot of times when we talk about bills in Congress and particularly we're trying to rein in some of the spending and reduce our deficit currently. So one of the problems with bills like this are how are we going to pay for it? And I think you're getting to the point of what happens if we don't pay for it? What is the ultimate cost? Let's not just look at the actual cost of passing this legislation. Let's look at the cost if we don't pass this legislation. What does consolidation with insurance companies buying physician practices or hospitals buying physician practices mean to access in small towns like the ones that you represent in Iowa?
1: Yeah, that's exactly the tactic I take. I'm not trying to avoid that there's a cost i know that there's a cost but i think you're so succinct that's the tactic i use when i talk to my colleagues the cost of not doing this is much more profound and will take them to a healthcare system that we and our party does not support we do not want a single-payer european-styled canadian-styled healthcare system and so one of the ways to avoid that is to make sure that we have a robust system where there can be competition for different types of providers and different types of practices, it's site neutrality. It's why I introduced that bill. I get hit on that by all of my hospitals in my area, my critical access, my rural. They're all very concerned that I'm undermining their ability. I want them to thrive, but their ability to thrive isn't because of site neutrality. It isn't because hospital-based uh, outpatient systems being able to bill more than what you can bill in your office. It's because Medicare and Medicaid payment is too low. That's the real issue. Uh, the real issue is that the payment structure is set too low, and that's because politicians, of which I'm now one, politicians have promised benefits after benefits, and now they're paying the cost of offering those benefits, and the price tag is really high. So, as a Congressperson, I have two hats. One. My hat as a physician and so i'm very proud of the policies that i've introduced i'm proud that we held a subcommittee hearing at the va on the health subcommittee on the va on federal supremacy why because what the va does will pre-exempt and override state licensure laws So when you wanna talk about scope of practice issues, that's a huge thing if the VA does not pay attention to state licensing laws and allows anybody to do anything because quote unquote, they're practicing at the top of their license. I'm proud of what I've done there on the site neutrality, on inflation adjustment, on physician owned hospitals. The goal is to have a robust system of providers at different levels, which can compete and can help to lower costs. And where most importantly, the great quality medicine that we practice and care that we deliver, where that is recognized and acknowledged. Because in the system that they want to go to, you can be the worst provider and still deliver care. Because they're not looking at those quality measures or metrics on outcomes. It's other things, it's like, you know, how many people do you see of diverse population? How many income? The measurement tools will not be. What's the outcome of your knee replacement or how many people have 20-20 vision after their cataract surgery? The outcome measurements will be vastly different under a single-payer canadian styled healthcare system.
0: Yeah, you touched on some really important things regarding scope of practice, which I want to highlight as well. As we are trying to get more people into medicine and ensure that we have enough physicians to provide care for the population that continues to grow in our country it's really hard when they look at the future of their profession and see, number one, I'm getting paid less every year for the work I do with no real plan in place to fix that. And number two, that there are other people who might be able to do my exact job for significantly less education with significantly less experience and that I'm not being valued for the work I do. So I really appreciate your work on the scope, especially at the VA subcommittee, because you're right. As things happen, they impact everything we do, even those of us who are not currently within the VA system or providing care to VA system beneficiaries.
1: Absolutely. And this is one of the places where not only on physician payment reform should all physicians be united. Uh, but also when it comes to the scope of practice battles. So you may not have challenges in orthopedics like ophthalmology does. And I respect my optometric colleagues. Our practice had one of our optometrists as a full partner in our practice. So I have great respect for them. But I was a nurse before I was a physician. I can assure you that even though I thought I could do, and I knew as much as physicians, I would be in the operating room on trauma, cracking a chest, And I would be talking to the nurses on the floor and telling them what to do because I wasn't going to bother my surgeon. And I was right. I did a great job, but I thought I knew. It wasn't until I went to medical school that I realized I didn't know as much as I thought I knew. And when you see nurse practitioners, I know in orthopedics, you have orthopedic physician's assistants, but do you want those physician's assistants doing what you do as an orthopedic surgeon? And so I think all of us have those issues and we should remain united on those issues.
0: Completely agree. And thank you for your work on that. The other point I would touch on that I always have to remind everyone of is, although it's called the physician payment that comes out from the federal government, our prospective payment is not just for physicians. So to the extent that we are lobbying and advocating on behalf of our patients, we're also lobbying and advocating for other people who provide care, social workers physical therapists, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants all use the same payment system that is being reduced every year. So it's not just a process that is hurting physicians. This is a process that is cutting at the front line of healthcare every day.
1: That's a great point. Radiologists, since I'm talking to orthopedic surgeons, you're correct. Our ability to be able to deliver care is impacted and it's all throughout the system. From the person that does housekeeping to the CEO of a hospital. It doesn't matter. All of that infrastructure ecosystem is impacted by where payment reform is, where reimbursement is. And then as we know, what follows from the Medicare and Medicaid side is then on the private system, which right now I would argue that the private system is what's keeping us afloat right now. And so as those reimbursements change, it's not saying that it's perfect. I've got my challenges with health insurance companies. I can assure you of that. That comes in when it's pre-authorization, where it's denial of care and having to reprocess claims, adding infinitum in order to get paid, delaying payment. I'm not saying private insurance companies are perfect. They're not. But nonetheless, right now, they're helping keep this entire system afloat because we know that if you're just Medicare and Medicaid, the amount of volume that you have to do to keep your doors open without your even taking home an increase in your salary it has to increase every year because of destructiveness of threats of cuts from anywhere from 4% to more, 4% to 20%.
0: We touched on MACRA a little bit earlier, and you had the Energy and Commerce Committee had a nice hearing on MACRA. Can you talk a little bit about what happened in that hearing and kind of the what's going to happen going forward with MACRA, in your opinion?
1: So I think looking at payment reform, looking at transparency in payment, we came up with a very good bill looking at transparency in payment throughout the entire system and knowing that we have to do something on the scale so that providers are not facing every single year a cut. As we know, that will probably have a significant CBO or Congressional Budget Office score if we do that. And so talking with Chair Rogers and the staff have been talking with both Ways and Means and Appropriations. And so we're hoping to get that bill to the floor. Right now, there's a little uncertainty, as we know, because of what happened in the Speaker's race. I realize that. We may have a speaker by the time that people listen to the podcast, but nonetheless, right now, there is uncertainty, and it's why it's very important that we ask these questions of those candidates for speaker, because it's going to be very important whether we can get those bills to the floor. And so I think we're going to continue to push on the Energy and Commerce Committee, both with ways and means and with appropriations, that these are important bills that need to be brought to the floor. Sometimes you got to spend money to save money, and I think this is one of those instances where we have to spend money to save money. Having physicians or students not enter into medical school or go to medical school because they can go to a shorter route and get paid the same money, that is not an inducement to people making the sacrifice to go to medical school and residency. Acknowledging the educational level, at our hearing with the health subcommittee, the optometrist said, I'm a physician. And I can tell you, you should have seen the shock on my face. And at the end, I just said, I do not consider optometrists physicians. That went into their newsletter to all of their optometrists. But I'm not going to back down on that. They are not physicians. You want to call yourself an optometric physician. You're not a physician. You're an optometrist. I respect your education and your training and what you do, but you're not a physician. And so I think for us to continue to push, number one, we have to educate our own members. And that's where you all come in. You all help us to educate members of Congress. So if we don't have physicians and increase the number of physicians, increase graduate medical education so we can train more physicians, we don't have physicians in rural areas. Rural areas seed things to lower level or lower educated providers, which then further erode our ability and our desire to go into a rural areas. Almost always, they don't have to pull call. They don't have the same malpractice considerations that we do. They don't have the same hours that we do as physicians. So it's not a one-to-one replacement, which is what you often hear from hospitals.
0: Completely agree. What do you see coming forward with regards to the short-term fix for Medicare? We know we're facing a 3.34 or so percent cut. There have been some ideas thrown out that I think have been discussed at a variety of levels. Either with the DOC caucus or you personally or things you're hearing, what do you see as potentials for trying to stave off some of those cuts or all of those cuts by the end of the year, given some of the restrictions? We're not going to have an omnibus bill this year. Obviously, things going on with the speaker may impact this. Any thoughts on what's happening by the end of the year for the short-term cut outside of what we've talked about long-term for solutions?
1: Yeah, I would say I'm going to continue to ask for you all to advocate every level. Talk to your physician colleagues. Ask them to advocate as well, too. We have the Republican Conference, which is focused on cutting spending. Again, I think we have to be smart about what we cut. The HHS budget is not out yet. And so I would think that what is going to happen is that we're going to end up at the last minute not cutting as deeply. And I think it's interesting because one of the other things that impacts healthcare costs that doesn't get recognized And I'm going to refer back to scope of practice, and that is lesser educated providers order more tests. And I know that one of our members on the VA health subcommittee took offense at that, but they order more tests. And so that then costs the healthcare system more, especially Medicare and Medicaid, and then we get penalized for that. So I think that's one of the other things that you bring up when you're having these conversations that... Substituting lesser trained and educated people actually doesn't help you to save costs. So we're gonna continue to work on this issue both on energy and commerce, both as physicians and as the DOC caucus. We are absolutely committed to continue to work on it regardless of who speaker is and to also educate our colleagues on why this is an important issue. But I think what will happen is ultimately there may be a smaller cut than there is now, but then it's just continuing to educate on why we need to support physicians be it physician-owned hospitals, be it on inflation adjustment for Medicare payment, or Medicare economic index, or site neutrality. That's why we need to support physicians.
0: Well, I can't thank you enough, Congresswoman, for your time today. I know it's precious. I know there's a lot of things going on right now that deserve your attention. Thank you for your dedication to your district, to our patients, and to physicians across the country. And we look forward to continuing to support you as you continue your journey in Congress.
1: Thank you. And honestly, there's nothing more important than making sure that we have physicians that are able to practice and practice in the setting and the style that they want to do and throughout the country, including rural areas. So it's an honor to be able to do that. I'm privileged to be able to do that. And my door is open for you all.
0: Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound designed by Mission-Based Media. If you like what you heard today, please consider offering a rating or review and sharing the podcast with your colleagues. You can learn more information about this topic and other AAOS Advocacy efforts by visiting aaos.org forward slash thebonebeat-advocacy.